Welcome back to the McCann Dogs Podcast, Season 4, Episode 6, and today we need to talk about dog reactivity. I'm here in the podcast studio with instructor Christine. Hi, who, uh, Hi, Christine. How are you today? I'm good. How about yourself? Excellent. I'm excellent. And I will tell you, if you didn't want uh, listen to the last couple of episodes and get to meet instructor Christine, I affectionately call her Swanee all the time. That's her last name is Swan. So that will probably slip out if you hear me refer to Swanee. Now you know I am talking about Instructor Christine. (laughs) So Instructor Christine, when we are talking about things like reactivity, I want to be clear with our audience that we're not talking about aggression. We're talking about dogs that get really stimulated at the drop of a dime, that get really pumped. I'm not talking about dogs who have bitten other dogs or bitten people or are in some sort of um, state where they're they're showing aggression. This is definitely something that you need to seek professional help with. If you're seeing aggression, if your dog has bitten or has grabbed or is trying to bite, you need to seek professional help to help work through any of those issues. When I'm talking about reactivity, I'm talking about the dogs that are just pumped. They're super excited and they're super excited to react to things in their environment. So that might be a car. It might be another dog. It might be a human. It might be a squirrel. It might be garbage blowing down the road. It could be any number of things. So um, in your best description, how would you describe a reactive dog in the terms of how we're going to talk about it today? It's a dog that basically what you said is pumped by its environment. Uh, It has certain triggers that the dog says that is so exciting. I must go and chase that or I must investigate that. It's a dog that its mental state doesn't stay calm. Excellent. I love that. And I think that it's important to note that there are a lot of different breeds of dogs out there and that brings about breed tendency. We had a really good conversation a couple of weeks ago about the different breeds of dogs that you have had and about the tendencies that they have. And a lot of the times those tendencies end up becoming negative qualities because we don't necessarily harness them and use them to our advantage. So when we're dealing with reactivity, a lot of the times I find that that is a very true description. It's a dog that has a natural tendency to be reactive and we haven't necessarily given them a channel or an outlet for that tendency. So right off the top of my head, what springs to mind is herding breeds. They are bred to be responsive. They are bred to turn on a dime. They're bred to be very swift and very nimble. You had corgis that you lived with that, you know, even though they're a little bit shorter in stature, Mm -hmm. they're still very quick to move. Right. And very aware of their environment. They're always looking about, uh, you know, just, you know, being, you know, being, doing what they're bred to do to be aware. Absolutely. There's a lot of dogs out there. We call it hypervigilance where they just take in everything from the environment. Um, in your experience with the dogs that you have lived with, would you call any of any of the dogs that you've had hypervigilant? I would say I had uh, my Sheltie was a little bit uh, fearful of environments. And okay, so she was always watching, always watching. Um, even my my Saluki, uh, she would notice the littlest thing blowing. She loved to chase things, and uh, one single leaf, you know, forty Ooh, feet yeah. away, would blow, and she'd be like. I need to get that leaf. Mm. I must chase it. So I think all my dogs had had very good vigilance, um, especially the herding breeds. Yeah, yeah. I would say that um, out of my own dogs, um, I dealt with some reactivity issues with 
I would say each of them actually, but channeling them into more productive ways by recognizing when they were going to be uh, a negative in my life and making sure that that didn't get rehearsed. So as an example, you mentioned um, Atari being a little bit fearful. Uh, My second toller, Tyler, he was very reactive to things and he was what I would call hypervigilant. And um, as an example, every year at the training hall, we would decorate the training hall for Christmas and we would put these little Snoopies up in the windows in the grade two hall. I remember them. Yeah. If anybody knows our our advanced class hall, the grade two, grade three, grade four hall, you'll know that those windows are really, really high and purpose built. They're really, really high because we wanted to make sure we had light coming into the building, but we wanted to make sure that people weren't getting distracted by things and dogs too, weren't getting distracted by things outside of the windows. So the windows are quite high. They're definitely not in line with most dogs vision. And At the time when I had four dogs in my household, I would release all of my dogs into the grade two hall so that we could do some training or have a run or whatever the case may be. And the only one of my dogs that would notice those Snoopies up in the windowsill was Tyler. And I would say that he was incredibly hypervigilant about his environment. He would notice the slightest change Mm -hmm. as soon as it happened. And Um, My point that I'm getting at, you have a really, really awesome line that you like to say when you're giving advice to our students. Tell me what that is. It's look for the fuse, not the explosion. Perfect. And that is brilliant. And that's really, that's how you're going to fix dog reactivity issues and redirect that reactivity to be beneficial in your life Mm -hmm. versus being an explosion out there in the real world. And when you say look for the fuse, what exactly are you looking for? So let's start with, um, we're t- we were talking about Atari. So when when you were out and about with Atari, what was the fuse that you were looking for? The fuse is the item or the thing or the person that has started that, that flame to be lit. Okay. She, it is what has interested her to start the reaction. Okay. And what were you looking for in her body language to know whether or not you needed to be on it and, and react yourself right away to do something to change her thinking or whether you figured you could probably let her relax into this situation that she was making progress in? She would start to stare at something. So okay. suddenly, you know, her casual walking with me would change. She would start to get a little bit stiff. She would start to turn her head. She would start to stare. Her body posture might go a little bit forward. She would look tense, look worried. Okay. And then at that point, I knew the fuse was lit. And if I continued to let that fuse go, I was going to get that explosion. Eventually, that fuse is going to reach the dynamite and boom, you're going to have the reactivity you're trying to avoid. So tell me now, with um, with Atari... As you were recognizing that that fuse was starting to get lit, what would you do? I was immediately starting to take action. So I wanted to interrupt that body language. Mm -hmm. I wanted to interrupt her train of thought. So I would, uh, you know, maybe reach down and touch her, clap my hands, uh, turn, go the other way, do something that is going to, uh, you know, stop. It's going to put out that fuse. So get her attention off that item. Perfect. And in terms of getting her attention, you were successful, I'm guessing, at getting her attention in most cases because you spent time training her, Mm -hmm. correct? Yes, yes. 
And I think a lot of the times people really take for granted how important obedience is. And with some dogs that are a little bit fearful, for example, they have this instinct to sort of stay close to safety elements. And when you have a dog that's a little bit shy or a little bit fearful, in all likelihood, they're going to stay close to you and they're not necessarily going to be the dog that goes out on a wide range and needs, you know, tons of repetition on a recall to get them to come back, for example. However, that will often fail us. That meant mentality will often fail us because when the chips are down and the dog really is in a situation where they're worried, that is when you need them to be responsive the most. So um, how much importance did you put on obedience with Atari? A lot of importance. Uh, we spent a lot of time training because I knew that was her, her be her safety. She, she needed yeah. to look to me to be safe and always move towards me to be safe. A dog that is fearful often will flee. And that's the last thing that you want. So lots and lots of obedience. Awesome. And I want to touch on a point that you just made, because I think that is a really, really important point. You said that you wanted her when she was worried, you wanted her to know to look to you. Mm -hmm. So how did you foster that with her? I would anytime that she was fearful of something, I would, uh, you know, always encourage her to look back to me. Uh, You know, I was her confidence. Um, You know, come back to me. It's always safe beside me. Nothing bad is going to happen when you're here beside me. Uh, Doing tons and tons of response to name, tons and tons of response to the word come, always ensuring that I never allowed her not to listen to those words. So it became very patterned in her mind that she must listen. She must move to me. Perfect. So even though she stuck close to home for the most part and had faith that you were going to keep her safe, you still worked hard to make sure that she had a clear understanding of what to do when she heard her name, what to do when she heard the word come, and all of the things in between. It is so important. I I would say it's even more important when you're working with a dog who is a little bit fearful. I would say it's even more important to make sure that your obedience skills are on point because you will need to rely on them when there are situations where your dog is a little bit unsure. And the last thing we want is a dog that panics and flees. Dogs are, are very much creatures where they will either fight or flee in a situation. There is a freeze in there too that will happen, but it happens less often. Most of the time, those are the two go-tos for dogs. They will either flee the situation if they can, or if they can't flee the situation, they get into defense mode and they feel they need to fight. So uh, when you're working with a fearful dog, their first reaction is likely not going to be to want to fight that situation and stick around. They're probably going to right away try to hightail it out of there. And if you can't break through that fear to stop them from running a lot, this is why we end up with a lot of dogs that are running loose out in the country and they become feral feral so quickly when they're out on their own. So the last thing we ever want is a dog that goes, yikes, I'm scared of this situation, runs off and then can't be called back. So even though they do instinctually stick close, it's so important to still do all of the obedience training and all of the lessons. And all of those things are going to help your dogs become, build their faith in you and build their faith in you as a leader so that you can then guide them through those scary situations. If you are a strong leader for your dog, your dog will look to you for advice versus taking the situation on their own accord. And um, if you've been around McCann dogs for any length of time, you know that our definition of leadership has nothing to do with being militant or overbearing or loud. It's all about giving your dog good guidance, not expecting them to know what to do without taking the time to give them the information to do so. 
Alrighty. So that was some good chat, I think, on dogs that are a little bit worried and maybe a little bit hypervigilant and reactive in that capacity. I think as well, too, when I'm out with Atari, I am more hypervigilant myself about the Ah. environment. Uh, When I walk my uh, my powder puff Honda, he he doesn't react to much. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I can daydream a little bit. I could, you know, maybe chat with someone I'm walking with, you know, not pay as much of attention to him. However, when I walk Atari, I, I'm looking around constantly. I love what that. What might trigger her? What, you know, what should yeah. I avoid? Uh, you know, what should I challenge her even with today? It's like, oh, look, there's some, you know, bags wrapped around the bottom of a tree. Let's go near those and, and just work on on gaining her confidence. So her walks are different than Honda's walks. Gotcha. And I love that you brought that up because I think that's such an important thing. The last thing we want to do is put our dogs into a situation where they're overwhelmed beyond the point that we can help them out. So it's so important that we are hypervigilant in our environment. And this actually goes for all dogs, but definitely dogs who are fearful. It's so important that we're able to see the things and predict the things that might make our dogs get a little bit upset and we can take action to change that. The other thing that you just said that was brilliant was when to know or how to know or how to push, how to push just a little bit. Because if we keep our dogs in this little bubble all the time, they never learn how to deal with the stress. And if we overwhelm them with too much, then they never learn how to deal with the stress. But there is a nice point in between that you can start on and that you can build slowly to help your dogs understand from a level of confidence. So tell me some of the, um, a couple of quick examples with Atari of things that you would do to help build her confidence. Well, we're definitely in the season of the uh, big lawn and inflatables uh, <laughs> at Halloween everyone's got the inflatable skeletons and the inflatable uh, witches and uh, now we're coming into Christmas so we're going to have the inflatable Grinches and the inflatable Santa Clauses and Atari is extremely suspicious of those mm. they are I know, don't blame her I'm I'm extremely suspicious right, of that yes. Grinch too yes <laughs> he might steal my dog and some of the uh, some of those Halloween decorations are pretty scary too mm-hmm. I think I'm a little bit uh, you know growly when I see them I actually have a person just as a side note I have a person on my street who puts out a fantastic coffin every single year and it's like this huge attraction for the neighborhood kids wonderful some people are such halloween wonderful right. halloween yes, spirits yes yes Anyways. i do i do love seeing them all it makes yeah it's, it's a lot of fun yes i don't begrudge them i i yes i think they're awesome <laughs> i love halloween it's yes. one of my favorite uh times of the year but anyways yes but back I, to dogs <laughs> i i know when i walk atari in this time of the year there's going to be far mm-hmm. more challenges so you know i might have some extra good treats in my pocket or an extra toy and uh, i'm going to look for i'm going to start off with with the more simple ones uh, some of the decorations will blow about and that would just overwhelm Atari yeah, way too much so for those i'm going to cross the street but if i see one that you know looks you know maybe doesn't have a face on it uh you know staring at her and uh you know looks pretty benign you know i'm gonna walk her past that i'm gonna encourage her i'm gonna reward her for being brave i'm gonna be confident myself and and you know maybe even go up and touch it to show her that there's nothing to be fearful of so it's uh, it, it's picking and choosing, picking right. and choosing what's not going to overwhelm her, what I think she can handle at that point. Amazing. And if you came across something that was just absolutely overwhelming and you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is not something I'm going to expose my dog to in this moment. Um, what would you do in that exact moment to avoid the thing? I'm going to try to distract her as much as I can. If I can't create... um 
what I want to do is create distance. But mm-hmm. this did happen to me once. I was walking along um, Upper Wellington in Hamilton, which is a uh, quite a busy street. It is, yeah. And one of the uh, restaurants had put out a flag, and I kind of turned the corner, and there was this flag on Upper Wellington, and there was cars zooming everywhere, and suddenly the flag started to blow. And it completely caught me off guard, and uh, Atari was like, yikes. Uh, I couldn't quickly create distance because I couldn't cross the street. Okay. So what I did was I had to backtrack, and I tried my best to, you know, clap my hands and, you know, be a little bit silly. So Atari stops looking at that and, and looks at me, and then I just, you know... Woohoo! Yeah, woo! Nice. I'm sure anyone who saw me thought it was absolutely <laughs> crazy, but I knew in that moment I had to kind of jolly her out of her fear. Yeah. I had to break that fear before it, it became far too intense. So I'm going to distract, distract, distract. Just like when um, when my son was little, uh, we'd walk through Walmart and suddenly I'd see a, a huge Pokemon display. Oh. And it's like, you know what? I love to stop and look at the Pokemon with my son, but, you know, we got an appointment. We, you know, so I need to distract my son. So it's, hey, Ty. Look over there at the chocolate. Right, yeah. Look, look, you know, look, <laughs> woohoo. I could do a little dance. And, you know, my son would, you know, not even see the Pikachus and we could zoom on past. So fabulous. with my dog. Good parenting tips. <laughs> now, if you were to look at that flag situation, obviously it's not reasonable to expect to avoid flags now for the rest of your life or for the rest of Atari's life. So what would you take out of that situation when you got home to, to try to help work through that? Well, I, I might possibly then go to the dollar store and I'm going to uh, buy, a, you know, one of the little flags that I can um, put in my grass in the backyard. So Atari already knows that our backyard is a safe environment. I'm going to first just lay it on the ground, let her come up to investigate it, uh, maybe put a few treats on it. So she's like, oh, I like these flag things. They, you know, they, they have treats growing out of them. <laughs> um, you know, on a non-windy day, I'm going to, you know, put it up in the yard and uh, let her run up and investigate it. Um She's going to get so used to it there. Eventually, it's going to start to blow or all wave it about. And I'm going to reward, reward, reward for bravery, incorporate this flag into being this big fun thing, get her used to the flapping noise mm-hmm. so that eventually she's going to learn that if she hears a flapping noise out on the street or sees that movement, she's going to remember all the good times she's had around that other flag. Now, it's not... You know, not 100 Mm percent because now we're completely in a new situation. Mm -hmm. But hopefully I've diffused the situation enough that she's not going to go into full fledged panic mode and I can interrupt, get her focus back on me before she goes into a panicked flight. Perfect. And you said something really great there that I want to touch on and investigate a little bit more. You said a different situation. And we always talk about dogs being tremendously situational creatures. You know, we as humans are very good at generalizing things. Dogs are not necessarily as good at generalizing things. We need to put some some targeted effort in to get them to the point where they can generalize and they can understand how to listen to our cues and how to interpret things in the environment when the environment itself changes. So situation you can take a flag home, you can take all sorts of different things into your life and you can help your dog get accustomed to it. That doesn't necessarily mean that now when you get into another situation and a different flag or a different happenstance that your dog is going to be able to be stress-free around that thing. 
I like to, um, we actually had um, uh, some fear issues come up recently in one of our um, online training groups and we were giving some advice about a dog that suddenly became frightened of the wind and we talked about setting up situations at home so that the dog could learn to cope with that stress. So sometimes you can generalize by adding in all sorts of other elements to help your dog work through and learn what different textures feel like, what different noises feel like, etc. So sometimes things like pulling out the blow dryer will help with the engine down the street being less stressful because if you pull out the blow dryer at home, you can introduce that in a nice, slow fashion. So I actually did this with Ned when I brought home a forced air dryer a couple of years ago. He was a little bit nervous about the noise of it because it was such a big, bulky thing. And I started by just leaving the forced air dryer in the kitchen and he would have to walk by it several times a day. And then I started to actually counter condition his reaction to the forced air dryer by holding it without turning it on, feeding him lots of treats. Then he would start to offer looking at the forced air dryer because he was recognizing that treats came along with that forced air dryer. So he would start volunteering to look at it or move over to it. And I would yes and reward that. That built his confidence there nicely. And then I got to the point where I just quickly turned it on and off just like that. It was probably a half a second that it was on and off. And while that half a second was happening, treats were raining down for him. So he barely even noticed that the dryer turned on and off. Now, I kept working through that until he was at the point where now I can use the forced air dryer on him. We actually have a little game where once I get to the end of forced drying him, I'll say, okay, get it. And he can chase around the wind and he has a blast with it. So very, very happy with the forced air dryer now at this point. Yes. Yes. And we can go into other situations now where there might be a loud wind noise or there might be an engine noise and he's got that experience to sort of rely on where we were able to work through that. So now I can take the same sort of tactics and like jolly him along in that situation and he suddenly goes, oh, okay, this is not a big deal. And it's not just about the dryer in my experience. It's also about the fact that I have given him confidence in a situation where he wasn't, he was lacking confidence. And he learned, as you said with Atari, learned to look to you to take those signals and to understand that this is a situation that's not scary because I I helped him work through that stress in this situation. So that's one way that you can really start to help your dogs generalize things is to find something that is similar that you can control and you can break it down, right? right? So instead of now, instead of Atari having to face this entire flag, she's got to face a little tiny flag out in the yard that might ripple a little bit and then maybe some tarps and maybe some other things Mm, that have action to them as well. And again, you're, you're exposing and you're helping your dog understand that you as the leader are not afraid of this thing. Right. And when they're looking to you for that advice, that's the guidance that you're giving them, which I think is great. Yes. And it takes time too. It doesn't happen overnight. This is, you know, weeks, months, maybe even years for some things. Yeah, absolutely. And then a lot of the times too, when you're dealing with dogs that have fear reactivity issues, you will make tons of progress forward and then you have a singular event and it sets you back a little bit. Have you had an experience like that? Um, I'm sure I'm trying to think with, uh, uh, Atari's my only dog that's really had a lot of fear issues. Okay. Um, we've been pretty good actually, but I, I know, you know, I remember my, um, uh, my, my parents' dog, they had a, a very strange event. Uh, the, uh, dog, uh, was laying below the telephone and it was, you know, back in the old days, the telephone that are, are attached, Ooh. you know, to rotary your wall, dial. Your rotary. 
And the dog's uh, <laughs> tail somehow got tangled up in the cord. Oh, my goodness. And when the phone rang, the dog startled, jumped up and ran. And because the phone was tangled in the dog's uh, tail, pulled the whole phone down off oh. the floor. And then the phone followed him along, oh, uh, dangling and making noise. And of, of course, that made you know him have a fear of ringing noises because now he associates a ring with something chasing him and something clattering behind him. So, you know, odd Yikes. things can happen yeah. throughout the dog's life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And depending on the, the sort of relationship you have with the dog, depending on the experience the dog has, those things can be really hugely detrimental or they can be things that you can come back from and work through. Always trying to continue to make forward progress. And if you're finding that you're not making forward progress, Think about how you can break the systems down so that you can build little bits of comfort with your dog. Um, I really liked that discussion about the fearful reactivity, but let's talk a little bit now about other reactivities. Right. How about stimulation? I, I think those are more common yes. too. I think because I've, you know, most of my dogs haven't been fearful, yeah. but you know, having the fearful dog made me made me a far better dog trainer. It, yeah, it's definitely. To experience all the different temperaments because it gives you a lot more tools and experience. Absolutely. Yes. And we're really lucky with our own education and our own learning as dog trainers because we see so much variety and we see so many people who need help and we get to help people work through things. And I always say there's no perfect formula in dog training. Dog training is not about two plus two equals four. Dog training is about troubleshooting and trying different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have systems that we know will work with the majority of dogs. However, there's always troubleshooting to be done and there's always something, some reason to think outside the box with our dogs. So the more you can learn from everywhere, the better off you will be in terms of a dog trainer. Um, with reactive dogs, when we're talking about stimulation, what would you say the most important thing to work on with those dogs might be? It's basic obedience, getting the dog to listen to you, to be able to sit beside you and, and remain calm while you know, balls are being tossed around, uh, leaves are blowing around, other dogs are running around, children are running around. A dog that can remain sitting beside you is not getting into trouble. Absolutely. That's that's really, really smart. So having some basic obedience is so crucial. And the Truly, it is the basics. Just being able to place your dog in a sit in what we call control position. That's what we always call our dog sitting at our left-hand side. Or, you know, it could be a right-hand side, too. It definitely doesn't need to be just the left. Left is tradition, but if you're left-handed, you might want to have your dog on the right side, for example. If you're right-handed, it's usually best to have your dog on the left so that you've got um, you've got your, your wits about you in terms of that dominant hand. But in situations where there's excitement out and about. So let's say, let's just create this hypothetical scenario. So you have, we'll, we'll say your Malinois saber. Saber, yes. We'll see your Malinois saber loved to chase things, right? which we know yes. she did anyways. But let's say your Malinois saber loved to chase people on bikes. So she would get really stimulated and reactive whenever she saw a bike. Tell me how you might break that down. Well, I'm going to set it up as a training exercise. So I'm not just going to practice it when perhaps somebody drives by on their bike. I'm going to say, this is an issue. You know, the last thing I want is to her to lunge out at a, someone on a bike and knock them off the bike, yeah. get them hurt or hurt herself. Uh, so I'm going to set this up. So I'm going to use my own bike. If I didn't have a bike, I'm going to enlist a friend's bike. And I'm going to, to practice. We're going to practice sitting around the bike when it's still. 
We're nice. going to practice having the bike go by slowly and sitting beside it. So let's talk about the still thing for a second, because I know our audience is saying, well, how does this help if the dog is able to look at a still bike? How does that help when my dog's reactive as the bike is running down the street? Well, when dogs are reactive, they're not in a learning stage. So when a dog is mentally calm, that's when you're best to start to teach them something. So Brilliant. with a still bike, I'm going to let my dog investigate the bike. And then the dog's in a mentally calm state, and we're going to start there while the dog can think. We all know, I love that. you know, if we get over, or a ch- child gets overexcited, they're not thinking anymore. You know, the kids, uh, you know, Christmas morning, you know, running downstairs to rip open their <laughs> presents. You know, the, the last thing they're doing is, is in wanting to learn something. At Absolutely. That point. Yeah. I always say you cannot learn calculus on a roller coaster. Oh, right. That's, you can't oh, that's, do I it. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that's brilliant. So um, in the initial stages of any training, you always want to start in what I call the white room where there's really no excitement to things at all. And that is because of the learning process. Mm-hmm. You cannot focus on calculus when you're in the excitement that comes along with riding a roller coaster. Your dog cannot focus on learning basics when they have that excitement stimulated brain when their brain is in hunting mode, you know, you can get them to listen in that moment, but it takes work to get up to that point. You need means of breaking through. Mm -hmm. And we don't like to be overly physical or harsh with our dogs in our training. You know, we like to use positive methods. We like to teach the dogs in a fair way that gives them an opportunity to learn without necessarily having to weather really, really tough corrections. And we don't shy away from correcting our dogs. If we need to correct, Mm -hmm. then we will correct. And there are certain, certainly circumstances where dogs need correction. Yeah, definitely some manners, you know, some manners need to be corrected. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not good learning. And even if I did in a moment, you know, my dog's out and about and they do something completely inappropriate and I take the opportunity and I correct that behavior, I'm not going to rely on that to be my teaching. I'm going to now take that situation and go, okay, what could I have done better? What did I need to do leading up to that situation to help my dog understand what they should have done instead, which is what you're talking about Mm. with that bike, not even moving to begin with. And I love that. So now what's your next step? So, so, um, you know, maybe you get your son to come out and sit on the bike. Right. Exactly. Yes. We're going to, you know, sit on the bike, maybe, you know, slowly roll it forward a foot, roll it forward a back, you know, maybe put the kickstand up and down, maybe ring its little bell. You know, all the things that, that bikes can yeah. do. I, I know, uh, you know, when I'm on the trail, often I hear a little ding, ding behind me and mm-hmm. on your left and uh, yep. I know a bike's coming up. So I want my dog used to that little ding, ding of the bell too. We yeah. Do a lot of walking on hike on trails. I love that. That's such a great idea. Um, and it, there's a couple of things that you can do, of course, to make your life easier when you're working with this. If you start the motion of the bike and that sends your dog over the top right away, what are you going to do to come back from that? I'm going to... Uh, get the bike stationary again. I'm going to maybe move my dog a little bit away. So I've created more distance Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to have my son move the bike again, maybe in a little bit slower fashion, not quite as far. So my dog now can handle it. They can think we're far enough away from the motion that I can think. Perfect. And the reason that we're setting this up and not just going to find people on bikes randomly is that we can control the situation Mm -hmm. in this case. So if you've got your son or a child from the neighborhood, maybe, you know, a lot of the times I'll do that. Hey, come ride your skateboard over here. I'm training my dog and I want to, you know, work on some motion stuff. And kids are 
fabulous. They're so good at taking instruction. Um, our instructor, Steve, if you know instructor Steve, he is um, he has a young child as well. And he really likes to play the red light, green light game when he's training his dogs and using his son to um, to help him train his dog. So that red light, green light just basically says stop motion to the child or start motion. And the kids have a blast playing those games. Yes. So now you are working on basic obedience skills. What does that look like? What kind of skills are you are you looking to work on in this situation? I'm looking at, uh, you know, asking the dog to look up to me. So can the dog turn and look at my face with the distraction sitting by? Can the dog hold a sit beside me calmly? Uh, can I walk the dog on a loose leash past the distractions? Perfect. Uh, can the dog lie down beside the distractions? So you know, can the dog function basically? Yes, absolutely. And that's the fuse. That's the little spark that we're looking for versus waiting for the explosion. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to work in that sort of fuse zone. So it, it can be a little bit of a balance to find. We don't want the dog to be so calm in the scenario that they're not actually being challenged and learning anything, but we don't want them to be so aroused in the scenario that they can no longer take information in. So Working with your own dogs out there, guys, if you find that you are struggling and your dog is, you know, really reactive to things out there in the environment, um, tip number one is build distance from the thing. Tip number two is break it down so that you can capture it and you can make it part of your own training in a more controlled scenario. And tip number three is to make sure that your dog is not rehearsing the wrong thing. And that's one thing that we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, A lot of the times problems with dogs get worse because of the rehearsal factor. So tell us what the rehearsal factor would be. So the rehearsal factor is, uh, say, uh, every time you let your dog out into the backyard, there's a squirrel and he chases a squirrel across the, you know, across the yard. He chases a squirrel across the yard. He chases a squirrel across Mm -hmm. the yard. Then when you walk out in the front yard and there's the squirrel, the dog says, oh, I I chase the squirrel across Mm -hmm. the yard. That's just what I do. I've rehearsed it so many times. Yeah, absolutely. And the rehearsal factor, rehearsal will predict future behavior. So if your dog has learned that every time the back door opens, they get to run out and chase squirrels, then you're going to end up in a situation where your dog becomes very hyper aroused at the back door and at the thought of chasing those squirrels. So what can you do in that scenario to stop your dog from only thinking about chasing those squirrels? Well, it's you, you need to set it up. It, it needs work. There's mm-hmm. no no magic switch. Uh, you know, I will sometimes uh, uh, go out in the yard and chase the squirrels away myself, which <laughs> can be lots of fun. <laughs> Swanee's rehearsing chasing yes. squirrels. So then I can let my dog out, and now there's no squirrels in the yard. So if, if I do that every time, I, if I shoo the squirrels away, then... I'm taking that excitement away from the Mm -hmm. dog. So the dog goes out and learns to start to calm. Or I'm going to go out on a leash with the dog. Mm -hmm. So the dog's going to go out wearing a long line so I can interrupt the behavior. I'm also going to maybe, now people say, how do you set up squirrels? That's a tough one. But what I have done in the past is I've gone to a local thrift store Mm -hmm. and I bought an old fur coat. Oh, and nice. what I did was I I cut off the sleeves and I would roll them into little squirrel shaped uh, creatures uh-huh. that I could put out on my property. Nice, and I'd have my dog on leash and we'd go out and the dog would spot this little furry lump in the uh, grass and go, oh, it's there, I see it. And <laughs> we, then I could start to do some training, mm-hmm. and, and and because my my make believe squirrel's not moving, it's not as much as a, an excitement thing for the dog. So we can practice 
we can get closer. Nice. And, uh, you know, in the dog's belief system, that maybe is a squirrel. Uh, then later I can put the dog away and I go out and I hide my uh, my furry piece of fur somewhere. So the dog never realized it wasn't a squirrel. Uh-huh. Um, I've also bought stuffed, like a very realistic stuffed uh, bunny rabbit okay. that I can set out in my yard. And oh, the, the dogs bunnies. go, oh, it's real, it's real. And we work with it and it's not real, but they don't know that at a distance. Perfect. And it's all about the experience of listening in those situations. So once your dogs get accustomed to listening when there are fake squirrels out in the yard, now we can add some motion to these things and we can continue to practice listening. And dogs can absolutely learn to listen when they're in that, you know, really intense state, when they're in hunting mode, when they're in drive, so to speak. We can definitely teach them how to keep their ears open and listen by working, you know, on these little, I I call it the building the ladder so that you start, you know, at the bottom where there's maybe maybe a fuzzy toy that's not that exciting and then the next rung would be a, a fuzzier toy that's a little exciting then the next rung might be the fur coat etc cetera, etc cetera. the other thing that i like to do when it comes to rehearsal is i like to make sure that there's not an association of a singular event so for example with that door i don't want my dog thinking that just because the door opens the only action is to go out of it mm-hmm. i want my dog waiting and oh, listening yes, yes. so that yeah so that they understand that there are multiple options at mm-hmm. the door and i will actually set up training at my front door with all of my dogs when they're young puppies i make sure that i work on manners at the front door mm-hmm. i work on them sitting at the threshold before going out and i get that to the point where it's really ingrained by doing a whole bunch of things that don't include going through the door. Right, So yeah, so I might open the door. I always make sure it's safe, of course. So when I have a very young puppy that I don't necessarily feel like they have reliable listening skills yet, I'll have a leash or a line on them so I can take control. And sometimes I'll even put a baby gate across the door so that I can open up the door and there's something blocking the dog if they do happen to get away from me and I'm not ever taking a risk that I'm going to end up in a not so nice situation with a puppy that doesn't understand how to listen yet. But working on skills at the front door, so doing things like opening the door and doing a little bit of healing work out over the threshold and back in, opening the door and working response to name across the threshold. Rehearsing all of those things gives my dog multiple things that they might be called to do at that door, not just chasing the squirrels. So I I do that as well too. The dog can never leave the front door without my permission. Perfect. I I love that. One step further, I have a front porch and the dog can never leave the porch without my permission oh, either. That's great. So I have two, you know, kind mm-hmm. of safety catches uh, at the front in case, the, you know, the front door blows open or someone opens it and is unaware of the dogs. Uh, you know, hopefully I've proofed it enough and rep- enough repetitions that the dogs feel they can never leave those areas without permission. I love that. And then what you're doing is you're rehearsing things that are beneficial for your life and you're rehearsing things that you want to recur and you're disallowing the rehearsal of the things that you do not like and do not want reinforced by the dog. Yes. It's always a multiple, uh, multiple pronged approach to get to the point where we have dogs that will listen even when they're at their most stimulated state, which is usually what um, what happens when that reactivity starts to set in is it's that incredible stimulation right. inside the dog that hasn't been harnessed. Yes. Uh, Shannon, I have a, a very good story. Oh, I'd love I to hear it. It's a bit embarrassing. It's oh. a bit embarrassing. But is it embarrassing all, about all- me? No, no. Okay, I, then I go to, for it. I do, have, I do have embarrassing stories about Shannon, but they're for a different podcast. <laughs> That's the McCann After Dark podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I had a Belgian Malinois named Saber, 
And Saber loved balls. She lived and died for balls. And I knew that, but I was I was young and I was a little bit cocky. <laughs> and um, there was a, a men's soccer game going on at our local park. And I just happened to walk by that men's soccer game. And I thought, my dog's well-trained. You know, let's, you know, I bet I can go close to the soccer game to, you know, see what's happening at it. <laughs> Well, wouldn't you know that, uh, of course, you know, dogs love to make you humble at the worst times. Sa- the, the, the men were yelling and uh, it was a very intense game and the kicking. And, uh, you know, we'd been used to watching children's soccer games, which are not as intense as, as a men's soccer game. And the intensity of that men's soccer game caught me and Saber off guard. And Saber said, <laughs> "Oops, I must play with these men. Like they're at my level. Like those kids, <laughs> the kids that we watch, not at my level. This is my level." And she suddenly just leapt forward, and I had a very thin leather leash on her, and it was far too thin for her. And Uh-oh. what a time for that leash to snap. Oh. <laughs> the leash snapped and off Sabre went as only a Malinois can to join the men <laughs> playing soccer. And uh, she, it happened so quick. And she was on their ball in a split second and uh, had it between her legs and was just chewing away and snarling oh, and growling dear. at the ball and frothing at the mouth. And... Um, I went running into the game, and uh, the referee was yelling at me. All the men were yelling at me. <laughs> the crowd was yelling at me. Um, I took Sabre by the collar. Um, she was still obsessing over the ball, and I, I picked up the soccer ball, which was now starting to deflate. <laughs> and I went to hand it to the men, and uh, I, they were European and, and playing in their European language, so I, I didn't understand, and it's probably best I didn't understand what they were saying to me. <laughs> Um, they let me keep the ball, the deflated ball, and uh, we took it home as a, a trophy of shame. Souvenir. Yeah. <laughs> a trophy of shame. Yes. And uh, I learned a big lesson that day about thresholds and how, you know, children kicking a soccer ball was much different than yeah. men kicking a soccer ball. And uh, I had to do some whole different training with Sabre. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know what? She caught me off guard and she wasn't as trained as I thought. Oh, my and goodness. Now we have to, to relook at this. Yeah. But, um, you know, and if any of those men are watching, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we will buy you a soccer ball if you come and identify yourself. Right, yes. Because that's what that was a good story to have. It from was. How old were you at that point in your life? So I it was a long probably, time ago. I'm like I'm 54 now. I was probably 21 or 22 when that happened. So uh, you, you learn a lot and grow as a trainer. Absolutely. Um, I would hope that would never happen to me again. And I do always make sure my leash is is, is proper now. I'm not very, very good <laughs> advice. And I'm so glad that that scenario happened, but that everybody was safe yes, because it gave yes. you 33 years worth of wonderful storytelling. Uh, right. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's still, it's like it was yesterday. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think that is a great story to end on. So thank you for listening today, everybody. My name is Instructor Shannon and I'm here with Instructor Christine. Happy training. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the McCann Dogs podcast. And if you'd like some more training resources, be sure to check us out on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at McCann Dogs. And if you'd like to train with us online, be sure to check out the show notes below for our My Dog Can online training program, where we know in just a few weeks, your dog will become a well-behaved family member. Until then, happy training.